one of the most powerful things for me in terms of setting my path was understanding how I liked to learn and building a learning environment that worked for that. So often I think when we talk about concepts like leadership, we put it on, that's above my pay grade, that's only for people that run organizations of X size. Actually, each and every one of us is a leader every day. And those small moments are as important as the big movements. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Skipped yays of our lives this week, lovely people, as we've had some builders at home, which don't quite create the loveliest background noises for podcasting, but today's guest well and truly makes up for the gap. It's probably been eight years since I first heard of our wonderful guest today and started closely following her journey, but today was the very first time I've had the privilege of chatting with her directly, and I think you'll be able to hear we got on like a house on fire. If she'd been inspiring and influencing me from afar with her intellect, drive, and leadership until now, her impact was tenfold in this conversation, and I feel so lucky to be able to share that with some of you. Holly Ransom has about as much difficulty describing what she does as I do, but that's probably why we get get along so well, facing a lifelong struggle not to try everything and anything and all at once. She is a specialist in disruptive strategy, a private company director, an advocate for social and economic inclusion, a businesswoman, a globally recognized speaker, podcaster, and just this year, also an author. Starting with an arts law degree for similar reasons as I did, Holly's born flair for leadership and insatiable curiosity ultimately led her away from the law and into a constantly evolving career path with more accolades than I have time to list here. Just a few of them, she was named as one of Australia's 100 most influential women by the Australian Financial Review. She has delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama, interviewed Barack Obama on stage and was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's smart list of future game changers to watch. In 2019, she was awarded the U.S. Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence. She also won the Fulbright Scholarship to complete her master's degree at Harvard University, from which she graduated just recently and has now poured the culmination of all those experiences into a fabulous book, The Leading Edge. I'll let her tell you the rest herself in the most articulate and engaging words. I hope you all enjoy. Holly Ransom, welcome to Seize the A. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's great to be here. Oh, it's so lovely to finally connect properly. We were just talking off air about how I've been fangirling you since around 2013, I think, when we went to a conference together. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're incredibly generous in that. And as I was saying right back at you, I've been following your entrepreneurial career with the podcast and with your business as well. And it's just awesome. I love seeing other women in particular, but people winning and people who are prepared to back themselves. I get so excited every time I see success like that. So I just couldn't be happier for you. Oh, that's so kind. And I couldn't be happier for you and everything you've achieved culminating in a new book that we'll get to shortly. <laughs> but you also mentioned before my corporate refugee pathway and having escaped from law pretty quickly. And you escaped even earlier, avoiding the corporate stint altogether, which might make some people think that our law arts degrees were a bit of a waste of time. But I like to remind everyone that nothing is a waste of time if you learn something. And I think it made an amazing launch pad for me with everything that's come since. So what did you think? Yeah, and it's funny. I don't know if it's the same for you, but sometimes it's. I, I feel it's taken me time after my degree to appreciate what I got out of the degree in the sense of just the, the grounding in the law and how helpful that's been in running a business, being able to kind of get your head around contracts and just understand a whole bunch of that sort of stuff, perhaps more than I would have if I'd done the degree. That ability to read an extraordinary amount of information and be able to pick out the nugget, like that's what I feel like I got years and years of training in. <laughs> like how to work out what matters and what is peripheral, which I think is very <laughs> helpful in a lot of the work that I do, you know, where, where you're curating a lot of, you know, do a lot of work on stage where you're pulling together kind of uh, an array of ideas and trying to help people make meaning of it. 
And I feel like probably the law degree was an incredible grounding in in that. Um, yeah, and I agree with you. Like, I think the other thing is everything that happens alongside doing the degree. I mean, I'm grateful every day for the fact mm. my vice chancellor at university on day one at our induction said, you know, if you leave with just a piece of paper, we've failed you. If you don't go and study abroad and volunteer wow. and get involved in student organizations and all of that. And I was probably the kid that took that too far the other direction and, you know, decided to go and do everything outside the classroom. <laughs> you know, I spent most of my life at uni doing everything else, you know, volunteering and building businesses and, you know, working overseas and doing bits and pieces. But for me, th- those years are such an incredible opportunity to explore and to play and to learn and to try. And I think that's what's amazing about mm. that period of university. Alongside whatever you study, it's that freedom that you get and I hope people like really stretch the boundaries of. Yeah, and I don't think that freedom to explore has to end there either. But it's interesting that you said it was only later that you started to see the benefits of that period of your life. And that's something I love to emphasize on the show through stories like yours, that the dots don't usually connect until much later on. And finding your you know, finding your passion, it requires a lot of patience and trust that everything will eventually make sense. And, you know, not to always be seeking answers when we're not necessarily meant to know them at the time, but to keep asking questions, which is something that I read in maybe page three of your brilliant new book (laughs) that made me like, yes, less focus on finding the right answers, but more focus on asking the right questions. And I love that piece about trust, you know, trusting yourself as well. And I think that's one of the biggest most formative pieces of work we each have to do for ourselves. And I think for me, that's a lot of the story of my 20s is learning to trust myself, learning to trust that it's all going to be okay, (laughs) learning to trust that opportunities will come again, learning to trust that, Mm. you know, I can find myself out of a challenging situation, all those things that you've got to learn and and really you can only learn through trying and failing and and having a go and, and all that sort of thing. And I think that's absolutely critical. And I think to your point, the other thing is that preparedness to ask questions, which is a big flip from the world that we got educated in, you know, and the world as it was previously, which was a lot about the accumulation of answers. And now that we know there's a myriad of information, we are saturated, it is such a noisy world. The key is actually the ability to be able to ask better and different questions and then to go on the journey of how do I go about finding new and better answers. But I think the quality of our questions and the, the preparedness to focus on that and be question askers is one of the most important things Um, All of us as young leaders can be mindful of building our capability on. It's absolutely a future critical skill. Oh, well, if anyone needed a sneak preview of your incredible eloquence, they've had it before we've even reached five minutes into this podcast. (laughs) So I wouldn't blame anyone for being a little intimidated by your intelligence and achievements, let alone once we start adding things like Fulbright Scholar and Harvard Graduate, nominee on Sir Richard Branson's smart list of future game changers, and the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence, among many other things, which is just the reason why I started every episode by asking our guest what the most down-to-earth thing is about them before we get into the story to kind of break the ice and remind us all that you're human, even though I would insist that you're some kind of superhuman. So what is something really normal about you? Oh, I'm trying to think what my partner would say in answer to this question, because I feel like that's always a good indication of, of sort of what would they say if I, you know, they were asked a similar question. Probably I love to bake. That probably surprises a lot of people. So my big mindfulness thing is cooking and I love baking. And I think one of the reasons I love that is because it makes me feel really close to my grandma. I grew up, she's my favorite person. Uh, She's 90 strong. uh, And so much of my (gasps) memories of her growing up and where I think our special bond started was in her kitchen cooking and sharing recipes and all of that. So I think that's a really big one for me. The other one is I'm a little bit of a walking jukebox. I can't sing to save myself, but I have this ability to pick a word and just start <laughs> singing. In fact, my partner said it on the weekend. She's like, you just have the most eclectic range of songs. Like I'm never quite sure where they come from. I don't know that it's a good thing, certainly. <laughs> but that, that's the other one. It's, very, it's interesting. Yeah, it's not on in tune, but it's enthusiastic. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's very relatable. I think all of us have one of those things that we do, even though we're like, I suck yeah, at this, much. but I just enjoy it. So I'm going to do yeah, it anyway. I'm in my happy place when I'm singing. So you can all deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Amazing. Well, let's jump into the first proper section of the show, Your Way to Yay, where we go back to the very beginning of your life and make our way through all the chapters that it took to get you to where you are now. Because I really think it can be so easy from the outside to assume that you've always known you'd end up here, demystifying leadership for others and living your purpose every day. But for those who might be a little earlier on in their journey or who are feeling very distant from their own driving passion or, or who don't even know what that is yet, I think it's always helpful to remember that it was far from an overnight success for you to get here. And I'm sure you've been through many periods where you had no idea where you would end up or even where you wanted to end up. So let's start with your childhood and what led you to the law and then back out of it. <laughs> yeah, well, I can do my best. I mean, I grew up in Western Australia where we're both in Victoria now, but I was born in the Wild West and I mentioned grandma already, but she's pretty <laughs> formative to all of this because I think so much of my grounding of sort of what I admired as a young person, what I looked up to came from her and my grandpa who are 70 years married this year and just an incredible duo. Oh my Just gosh. unbelievable. And the two of them, I, I remember quite vividly and it's a story I, I uh, opened my, my book with. Like kind of, I think each of us, it's really interesting the first memory we have of ourselves or the first thing that we can kind of recall as being formative because there's something in that. I think there's a, a lesson and a nugget and our truth often embedded in that. There's something we're meant to take and make from those moments. Yes. And for me, that was shopping with my grandma. I honestly can't remember whether I was four or five. I was very little. And we were at the supermarket um, in Scarborough Beach, if anyone knows Perth really well. And we were going to the checkout. We were getting stuff to buy, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think, just food for lunch. It was bread and milk from what I can remember to go back and make sandwiches. And there was this man who at that stage of my life looked like a giant. He was like six foot five just enormous comparative to my stature. My grandmother is all of like four foot five or something or five foot maybe. It was probably a 12-year-old boy. Like, <laughs> like it was not even tall. Like, you know your conception <laughs> of like how things uh, are in your head, like anyone over the age of 10 is so old when you're little and everything like that. So you, you're yeah. absolutely right, it could have been. But uh, he was tearing into this poor young girl that was on the checkout. And I remember her face going bright red. Obviously, she'd given him the wrong change and he was letting her know about it. And it was mean and it was unnecessarily rude. And before I could even blink, my grandmother had inserted herself between this giant and this poor checkout girl who looked like she wanted to melt into the floor. And she pointed her finger up at this man and she said, how dare you talk to that young lady like that? You apologize. And I just saw this guy stop in his tracks sheepishly kind of like he truly stopped for a, um, a couple of seconds kind of going I don't think anyone had ever challenged him like that before on, on how he interacted with people <laughs> and he sort of mumbled sorry and sheepishly grabbed his things and ran out of the store my grandmother proceeded like nothing had happened right she just paid for her groceries you know checked the young lady was okay and then wandered out the door before she realized I was still like wetted to the ground deer in the headlights going oh my gosh did that just happen like what did I just see and I just said, Grandma, that was so brave. And she said, honey, when you, when you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. And I didn't understand a lot of the power of the responsibility and the kind of significance of what my grandmother said there. And, but what I have loved about her every day of her life is how she lives that. And that's been an enormous source of inspiration for mm. me. And I think when I look at, when you talked about how you made your decisions, I think so many times you can explain a fork in the road or why I chose to get involved in something or participate or say no or yes to an opportunity based on coming across something I couldn't walk past and going, I've got to dig my heels in here. I want to do something. Can I make a difference? And that ran in parallel with what do I need to do to build the skills so when I don't walk past something, I can make more of a difference. So who do I need to learn from? What skills and, and capabilities do I need to understand in order to be able to do that? But I think for me, it all anchors back to that moment of that idea. Each And, and what I love about grandma is it is those little moments too. That That is an interaction a lot of people would have been silent in. That is an interaction where mm. it's really easy to be a bystander. And one of the big things I'm passionate about is so often I think when we talk about concepts like leadership, we put it on Someone else says, that's above my pay grade. That's only for people that run organizations of X size. Actually, each and every one of yeah. us is a leader every day. And those small moments are as important as the big movements. And we need to really take oh. responsibility for the way that we show up in those, whether it's thinking about our own carbon footprint, whether it's thinking about, you know, the values that our household runs with, the way that we show up for our friends, 
let alone our teams and our work and our community. So I, I think for me, that's a big part of it. And, you know, grandma's always said I was born in perpetual motion. I think I've, I've always had this just le- level of energy and, and vigor that, that comes with that. But I think the way that it's been grounded and anchored has been in that kind of formative experience I had with her. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's really interesting that you said that we can all be leaders in big things, but even in the really small interactions per day, including just not like one of the things that if anyone who's not a lawyer probably hasn't done this in as much depth as we have, but is looking at acts versus omissions. And sometimes I think if we if we feel like if we don't act and we're not required to act, that that's fine. Like we haven't been part of the problem, but actually sometimes witnessing evil and not doing anything about it is just as bad as perpetrating it. Totally. So doing little small things in your life, you know, that can be as big a leadership as someone who's say the school captain and who becomes president or who is leader of their club or, you know, whatever it is. I think leadership doesn't have to be the being the top or the first or the leader, you know, that having a title. And I think that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you next, because you have been a super high achiever throughout your life. You were school captain. I was going to ask if you think people are born leaders, but it it sounds like you feel like leadership can go into every part of your life in the day-to-day small things. Yeah, completely. I think everyone is a leader. And I I think one of the things I'm passionate about is helping people to realize their sphere of influence and to connect in with their purpose and passion. Because I think really what we need each of us to lead is to be anchored in what what makes us light up? What is it that we want to be in the world? Who do we want to be for other people? What is the change that we want to see? And once we've got that purpose and direction, it, you know, I think our ability to then influence, even if that is about who you want to be. Like I know some people who are just all about, they want to be a source of positivity and hope for everyone. And their focus in every interaction they're in with everyone is about how do they bring that light? How do they bring that encouragement? How do they be that champion for someone else? Just as much as I know other people who've got the life goal of, you know, being a leader of a country or setting up their own company that's going to change the face of the world or going and doing, you know, aid work overseas or whatever it might be. So I think for me, absolutely each of us is born with everything that we need to be able to lead and to make the change that we want to see in the world. I think one of the the challenges is the way that our society is structured and the messaging that we get and what's rewarded and incentivized and not encourages some of us and discourages others. And so some of us who don't get that enthusiasm, and, and I often think that, you know, particularly about friends of mine who are really creative, who are so gifted in just the out of the box way that they can see the world. I'm excited that I feel like their skills are finally being acknowledged and talked about as as being as critical as we know they are to the world in the future. We keep talking about creativity and innovation. But when I think about the messaging they must have got in most of schooling environments where, you know, this is how you do things, it's largely a rote learning curriculum, creativity is not something you can make a career out of. I go, oh, my gosh, think about all those creative leaders that we discouraged who we've now got to help re-encourage and re-energise. So I think a big part of it is actually that for, for some of us, the kind of default environment of society reinforced that you're a leader and that your skills and capabilities are well served to go and lead. And some of us didn't get that messaging. And I think it's time we corrected that mm. that recognition and that balance because I don't think that's right. Oh my gosh. I totally agree with you. And I think even as someone who happened to probably operate and go through a system that favored my particular interests and strengths I still was very clearly able to see how that disadvantaged so many other people and it just happened that all the subjects I like were you know scaled up and that all the things that I was interested were rewarded all the time and that yeah I I I often notice that and the flip of that Sarah if I can ask you you know is that when you kind of default it's very hard to choose uh to step off the well-worn path right So to do what you did and go, okay, I've been very successful at university. Everyone's got this idea of where I'm going and this path is kind of almost trodden ahead of me. And then you're going, actually, that doesn't light me up. That doesn't feel aligned to my purpose. I'm going to step off that and do something different. That's the flip, I think, for people who've been encouraged because they feel this pressure to live out their purpose a certain way. And I think being true to yourself and acknowledging, is it mine or is it a purpose someone else has given me or projected onto me? is so important. I don't know if that was part of your story, but I can imagine that being challenging. Oh, 
Absolutely. And it was just, it was a whole, I'm exactly like you in terms of that perpetual motion thing. If I'm moving forwards, I'm gratified to a certain extent, regardless of whether I actually cared about the direction I was going in. I was like, I'm going fast. So it doesn't really matter where I'm going because I'm getting rewarded and promotions and like people are patting me on the back and telling me I'm successful. And that feels good. Yeah. It feels good. Like even if you don't really like the day to day of it, it still feels good because you feel like you're you know, society thinks that you're doing something worthy with your time. And so I think like now that's why I'm so fascinated in that whole productivity hamster wheel that you can get on because busy and productive are really gratifying. And I reckon you can go decades before you even realize, whoa, this is someone else's idea of what life is about. And it did take a whole lot of unlearning and detaching myself from those metrics, those like measurable financial metrics that in the end, it turns out aren't what light me up, but that it did take, I reckon like a five year re-education of myself to allow myself to embrace this totally different pathway. And now I think I'm just getting to that stage where I'm like, oh, okay, I've, I've totally let go of that old way of measuring myself, but I'm happy every day. And I feel like I'm doing what I'm meant to do on this earth, so but it good. takes a really long time, which is why I'm fascinated for you as well, how you ended up finding and forging the pathway to deliver the messages on leadership that now you are delivering to exactly where they need to be and exactly in the way that they need to be done. But back at school, like how did you start to figure out what that pathway was going to be for you? How did you even decide on law arts? Like in that system, you know, what is your decision-making process about your future? Did, Did you feel that you were getting drawn into the typical successful intellectual pathway? Like that's what I felt. I just did it by default almost. Yeah, I think a combination of both really. So one of the reasons I chose, so I did a law arts degree, but I majored in economics and I did a minor in politics. And I think at a very altruistic (laughs) level, and it's actually one of the reasons I picked the uni that I did and structured the degree the way I did, because they let economics be a social science. And so I could study it under the arts faculty. And for me, the reason I wanted to do that was at a basic kind of altruistic level. If If you want to change the world, I thought, well, you need to understand the existing political, legal, and economic structures. Like I've got to have a grounding in this. You can't change something until you understand it. And there's a lot of reasons mm. and history and vested interest in things the way that they are. And, and there's also a lot of blind spots. You know, there's a lot of people who just can't see that it's not working or that it's not working for certain groups of people or certain parts of our society. And so for me, it was a want to understand that. But to be honest, I really didn't enjoy university. I enjoyed that period wow. of my life because of everything else I did. I found the way that we learn really traditional. I'm a kinesthetic learner, so I learn through doing. I learn a billion times more, and that's why I'm so grateful for that line my vice chancellor empowered me with by going and starting a microfinance project and helping getting involved in small NGOs and being involved in my local council on the Youth Advisory Council and doing projects there and starting my own business and dabbling in that and seeing what I could do. And then, you know, the corporate opportunities I was lucky enough to get working from some incredible leaders. But for me, that was my playground. And I think one of the most important things, if I could go back and empower myself with something even earlier and something I hope might resonate for listeners, one of the most powerful things for me in terms of setting my path was understanding how I liked to learn and building a Mm. learning environment that worked for that. If I had tried to sit in the classroom and, and absorb that way, I would have made it out the other side, but I never would have understood the things about myself, have developed the clarity of the way that I thought I wanted to contribute to the world, all that sort of stuff, as I did by virtue of going out and, and dabbling and playing in the way that I did. So I think that's one of the biggest bits of advice is the learning outside the four walls of the classroom how can you put yourself where lightning might strike, where you might meet a mentor, where you might discover your purpose, yes. where you might go, oh, wow, that, that person could be a co-founder of a, a business with me or, geez, that's a community issue we're not doing enough about. How about I try and do something? I think for me that that was the pivotal part alongside the kind of learning journey inside the classroom. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the most interesting things I tend to hear now is people sort of feeling like they don't know what their 
purpose is or even what they really enjoy, which I can identify with because back when I was starting to think maybe law isn't for me, I actually didn't know what else I was interested in because I had not had any time to continue extracurricular activities or hobbies or anything like that. But then when you ask them, well, what are you doing to explore your passions? Like what are you dabbling in or are you giving anything new or red hot crack? Often their their answer is no. And it's like, well, unless you're trying new weird things all the time, (laughs) how are you actually going to have any data points to figure out, you know, what else you might like? But I think the flip side of that is people like you and I who do tend to love exploring everything and I was the same I spent so long overseas doing committees in the Northern Territory like so many doing Nexus like at the League of Extraordinary Women like there was entrepreneurship politics international policy like there were so many different things that interested me that being multi-interested is almost it's it's never obviously a burden it's a great thing and it's wonderful to keep your options open but it makes decision making very very difficult because you are so excited about everything so did you have an idea back then about what you are like what you're doing now was that the end point of I am trying to do all these different things to culminate in a leadership position did you know then or were you still no, just definitely not throwing things out there to see what stuck <laughs> and you know what's fascinating and I really resonated with what you were saying earlier about kind of the the plan and you know that one of the things I was fascinated by and I remember going and having so many conversations with mentors about in my early 20s when I was studying my degree and trying to work out what this degree was going to lead to and what I was going to do with it was how like how did how did all these people that I admired put it put it together like did everyone have this plan that had just been perfectly carved and kind of they walked their way through it and I was almost convinced you know when you have this hypothesis that you're wedded to I was wedded to this idea (laughs) that they all had a plan and I was just missing the plan and so I had to find a way of working out how to craft the plan (laughs) and then what was really fascinating to me was that everyone I would talk to they were like, oh, you, I never planned for this. Like my plan was to go and do X or I didn't even have a plan. I just took opportunities or, you know, I whatever it was, there was this inability in any way for me to get validation of that hypothesis. And so eventually I abandoned <laughs> that world. You had yeah, to let it go. It <laughs> but it's true. And I think about it, you know, I was reflecting on it the other night because I'd, I'd hit some, it was sort of 10 years since I'd met a particular friend and we were talking back over what was happening a decade ago. And never in my wildest dreams would I have envisaged doing some of the stuff that I'm doing now, having had some of the opportunities that I've had. And I'm I'm kind of convinced now, I've almost gone 180 on it. And I'm really of the opinion you need to have like a strong sense of direction in terms of being anchored to a purpose. And I loved what you said before about like just ha- being happy every day. That is one of the biggest signs for me in terms of the indicators of, am I living life right? If I wake up and I'm excited about the day, mm. I used to have this quote written actually on my mirror from Steve Jobs that said, every day for 33 years, I got up and I looked in the mirror and I asked myself, do I love what I'm going to go do today? And if the answer is no for too many days in a row, I knew something had to change. And so I think that notion of do you love it? Are you happy? Is probably one of the biggest indicators. So that notion, strong sense of direction, but loose hold of the reins, like being open to opportunity. Mm. I think it's so critical for young leaders like us and those listening to this particularly now, because we are talking about, you know, I think when I graduated from high school, it was we were going to have 10 careers over the course of our lifetime. Now we're talking to year 12s about the fact they're going to have 18. There are careers that don't even (gasps) exist yet that are going to be a part of our lifetime and our experience. So we've got to be up for that learning, unlearning, relearning journey you touched on before. And so the idea of having a plan, like things are not going to exist as they do right now. And that's exciting. We live in such a dynamic time. So I think a lot of the skills <laughs> that people in our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, used to kind of guide their careers and things like that don't work as well for our generation. Oh, I hate I the know. question and I actually think it's a really crap question to ask people and I'm sure you've been asked a million times. I know how I have. Like tell me where you see yourself in five years. As a crap question <laughs> unless we are genuinely talking yep. about like, you know, a loose definition of impact because the notion that, you know, you can step through a career ladder or things are as static as they might have once been where in our grandparents' generation, often they took a job and worked 30-year career for the one organisation or they worked in the same industry. We can have so many lateral moves and creative ways of applying our skills. And so I think we need to be a lot more fluid, but that means building different support. We need to be really clear on our purpose and our values because that's what guides our choices. And we need to make sure we've got really great people in our support structure 
who we can use as sounding boards as these choices come up who want the best for us but can be those sounding boards. So mentors and kind of sponsors and people that can be those support people to navigate all those different decisions, I think that's more important now than maybe it might have been before. Oh, absolutely. Like anyone who listens to the podcast regularly will feel like I've briefed you on what to say (laughs) because that is pretty much everything I believe about life (laughs) in one paragraph. (laughs) I I totally agree and I often say, you know, the – the why, once you find your why, that generally stays consistent and that represents purpose and values and beliefs and all of those kind of, and like needs day to day and what you want, but the how is going to change. And as long as the why is staying the same, it doesn't matter that the iterations of the how change chapter to chapter. And in fact, that's the exciting part that you're never static. And if I was the same in five years, I'd be concerned. Totally. I think I hadn't evolved in five years time while the world's like moving so quickly around oh, you. We're such kindred spirits. I say that all the time. I love that. I know. <laughs> yeah. And I also think something interesting about the being happy every day thing that is what old me didn't understand before I did have this big re-education of, you know, changing the metrics that I used to measure my life. Old me didn't even ask that question. Totally what was I happy or how was I feeling day to day? Because everything was macro. It was, what are my titles? What is my job? What are the box ticky things at this level that sound fancy? But what is the point in like earning X amount or having this title or making partner or whatever, if day to day it costs you your joy? And I think too many of us make at the decision-making point of our lives, we make the macro decision and don't think, on a micro level, what does that mean day to day? Am I going to hate that? I'm probably going to hate that. Like, <laughs> I find it so interesting that you talk about old me and new me. And I want to be really clear with listeners too. I, I didn't get this right the whole way through. I, I have only kind of honed this view of the world by getting it horrifically wrong. Oh. You know, I was diagnosed with depression in 2013 and had to completely go about resetting and recalibrating everything I thought I knew about myself and how I showed up in the world in the sense of, reframing my relationship with vulnerability, shifting, and this is probably the biggest change in my life, managing energy, not managing time. One of the most powerful concepts I've got in my head around, changing the values. I was, to your point, around the metrics. Like, what am I measuring myself on? I'm measuring myself on values now. I'm measuring myself on how good a job I'm going about, you know, delivering my impact on. And I think one of the bravest things we can often do is being prepared to walk away from people and things that no longer serve us. You know, those toxic environments that want us to be a certain oh. way that demand a certain version of us that we can we can do and we can achieve it but it's slowly eating us it is chipping away at who we are and our joy to your point and our energy and nobody nobody gets that right to do that to you but that's your agency only you can set those boundaries and work out what that looks like so for me as as much as that is you know the worst thing i've been through personally it's also the best thing because if I was not living life in a sustainable and healthy and holistic way. And I wouldn't be where I am now if it weren't for the recalibration that I had to go on there. And I'm a much better person and leader and partner and everything, I think, for the fact that I, I went through that. But if you can avoid kind of the the, the burnout, you know, when I look at it and I go, there were there were warning signs I should have seen. There was There was a way to be making these decisions earlier than having to hit a wall first and then work out how to rebuild. So I'd really, to your point, people can start thinking about changing the filter criteria for their choices now. Don't, Don't wait for one of these kind of challenging life situations or difficult moments or for it to all just be too much all of a sudden in whatever that might look like for you. You can start making those different decisions now. Although interestingly, with you mentioning before about your like big hypothesis on successful, happy people people. who are thrilled with their lives now, yeah, looking back for me, my theory now, particularly from doing what 200 episodes of this podcast, the one consistent theme, which is like unbreakable as a hypothesis is that it's the shit bits that get people there. It's not the good bits where things work out and they make good decisions and they just wake up going, oh, yes, this is where I'm meant to be. It's actually those breakdown moments and maybe not a full breakdown, mm-hmm. even though, of course, as A-types, we have to even high achieve at breakdown. So, of course, Naturally, there's like, we go all in, <laughs> like a, a full A-plus <laughs> burnout. <laughs> like but almost that. everyone has found that those formative moments are the tougher ones where you do get it wrong, but that's what guides you back to where, like onto the right track again. And you can't know those limits unless you push yourself to them. And I think that that's 
part of the thing that you need to embrace about the journey is it's not going to be rosy and great and it is going to involve bits where you're like, I don't, this is not what I want, but that's just as valuable as data for where you do want to end up as figuring out what you like. What you don't like is valuable to know because some people have no idea of either thing and they're just coasting along doing what they're doing just because. That's where you get on autopilot because you're not trying lots of different things and getting feedback and going, okay, I want less of this, more of that. It's just do more of what feels good and less of what feels bad and keep trying until you kind of get closer and closer. I feel like it's just constantly tweaking until you get more and more on an even pathway, but it takes lots of distractions and veering off path to get there. And I think the other thing too, to what you're talking about is that it's also a journey. It's not a destination. That idea of you don't ever fully arrive because oh life is not static. It's dynamic. And so circumstances and situations and opportunities are always changing. And so it's also getting comfortable with the idea that this is a constant ebb and flow that you're just rebalancing and recalibrating and one of the most important things you can do is learn how to check in with yourself whatever that looks like you know for some people that is you know mindfulness and and kind of deep breaths or yoga or meditation for others it's a lot more kind of journaling and they have a framework for how they kind of reflect on things and make sure they're calibrating in the right way but whatever it is I think having some way of cutting the noise out for yourself and really making sure that you're making a decision that's right for you and not one that's right for, to your point, the pressures, the noise, what other people are saying, the distractions. I think that's really important because the only things that, like those distractions pull us from our why and the more that we can try and find tools and, and anchors that can keep us coming back to it and, and have that accountability, we'll all make choices at times that that stray us away from them. That goes without saying. But, yeah, I think just having those strategies is really, really powerful. And so from that sort of big recalibration and aha moment it looks like the five or six years since then since the you know 2015 ish has been enormous for you so founding emergent then co-founding energy disruptors going back to uni to harvard of all places as a fulbright scholar nonetheless if you haven't heard of the fulbright scholarship it's the pinnacle of the academic world you're actually our first harvard graduate on the show so i'd love to know what that actually is like versus what we think (laughs) it's like from like legally blonde (laughs) you've interviewed some incredible people you have a podcast you've just published a book like i feel like once you do change your energy towards your purpose and the things that make you feel good, I think when I look back, I wouldn't have even aimed for some of the things I do now because I just couldn't have conceived of the fact that they'd be possible. So how has that snowballed for you? What would you describe as what you do now and what you want to do next and how all of that has come about and how you're seizing your yay now? Oh, big question. That's a huge huge question. question. I know. Sorry. There's like 85 chapters. No, I love it. And I completely agree with the whole notion of not even being able to conceive of, of certain goals. It's sort of extraordinary sometimes when you look back and Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things I could say as an A-type, and I know this will resonate, like we're very good at setting goals. The thing we've got to be so mindful of is that we don't become so fixated to those goals that we miss the opportunity that looks slightly different or that's a little bit, you know, colourful or creative or doesn't quite have the packaging the way that we thought it might be because that might be exactly what we were meant to say yes to and go off and do. So I think... That's become a really important one for me, just leaning into kind of saying yes to working. Like one of the things I love about what I do now, and it sounds like it's exactly the same for you, is I love everyone I get to work with. I really enjoy the work that I do and the diversity of it. And that brings me so much joy getting to work with great people on projects I'm passionate about every single day. And that's not something I could have said about life at different points of my journey so far. And it's it's also the really, and I don't know if you have this the same way, but one of the things I'd stress to listeners too is it doesn't stop people from coming and still trying to tell me that I should be doing something different. I hear that multiple times a week. A lot of people still want to project their wants for me or their belief in yes. what success looks like. You really should go off and run this sort of company. You really should be running for office. You really should be doing those sorts of things. And so I just remind people too that you've got to really be mindful of the energy that you let into your orbit and just understand that that's kind of safeguarding your truth, particularly when you're choosing to march to an unconventional beat, which is definitely, I think, the the story of my career so far. I'm I'm not really boxable, which is something... 
I find as a strength, <laughs> but it's also a challenge when you're interacting with a lot of people who like to be able to go, oh, so you do X. Because really I do a whole myriad of things. I'm, I'm lucky enough to, you know, be a, a host and a moderator and a curator yeah. of content for incredible programs and organizations across the world. And I'm fortunate enough to get to do a lot of leadership development work. And weirdly enough, I'm, I'm now a writer, which is something I never thought I'd, I would be saying about myself. Yeah, that, that one's very weird. I'm trying that on the size at the moment. That doesn't quite sit right yet. So a whole multitude of things. And I love that because I think the heartbeat of when you think about things that you love, they've often got common threads to them. And one of them for me is I'm insatiably curious. And so having diversity of the things that I do, so I'm always interacting with different sectors and yes. problems and minds is something that just means I'm constantly stimulated. And when I think, and it sounds like something you were talking about before, like when you when you know what's happening next, it's almost when I worry. I'm exactly the same. That's why I was saying, oh, we're such kindred spirits when you said that. Because I think for me, the dynamism and the diversity and the pace and the change is what keeps me at my best. It's not everyone's choice. Some people I deeply admire because they are such technical experts and they're obsessively brilliant or yeah. focused on a particular part of the puzzle. And that's awesome too. But for me, I think being able to know what lights me up, not just in terms of, you know, what my purpose is and kind of who I enjoy working with, but also the dimensions that I need in my day and in my week to be at my best. That's one of my favorite things. And so at the moment, you know, I just only graduated last yeah. month because of covid I started over at campus at Harvard, then finished online because we were obviously cut short by the pandemic. I had to leave the US when they closed oh campus gosh. with the spread of the coronavirus. So I, I finished the last year of the degree online. But one of the things I'm passionate about is this whole leadership development, leadership movement that I'm launching with the book and with a whole series of things that will come out in the next little while. And I just want to invite more people to come on this journey of evolution and growth and building these skills and seeing what we can do together because we need it. We desperately need it. Oh, how exciting. I can't believe you're a Harvard graduate. What does that feel like? <laughs> do you know what's weird is it, it doesn't feel real yet. And I think because it was all online, there was never really a sense of closure. Like graduation yeah. <laughs> was sort of like watching a YouTube video yeah. and because God bless them, they don't think of us in Australia in the time zone here. So it was like at 3am Australian time. So I just like propped the laptop open on the bed and that was about it. Oh, but I think yeah. not it, a pretty time So I think day. in that way, and I, I'm sure so many of your listeners can resonate with this, right? Like it feels like such an extraordinary privilege and first world problem to be talking about, you know, a, a graduation not going the way that you might have envisaged originally. But I think for each of us, milestones and achievements and challenges all took on a different form uh, to what we might have been used to in the last 12, 18 months. And that's a recap. Yeah. Like I'm one of those people that quite likes to bookend things. So, you know, you start something, you do it well, you finish it. Okay, cool. What meaning am I making of that? What am I off to do next? So the only reason I say that is because in not that it, it didn't happen over there. I care less about that. But in, in my mind, mentally, I don't feel like I have closure on that chapter as such. Yeah, totally. My partner threw me a surprise graduation last weekend, which was uh, really wonderful. And I think in many ways that helped achieve that moment because it was bringing together so many of oh, my favourite people here. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it sort of doesn't quite have the level. Like I, I wasn't living over there for two years because that got cut short and I've kind of been in a hybrid world of studying, doing night shift and working and what have you. So it probably feels a little bit different, which I'm sure everyone who's graduated university or year 12 or, you know, achieved anything in their lives in the last 12, 18 months and sort of hasn't been able to celebrate or hasn't even been able to gather with people and have that acknowledgement can resonate with. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think it is hard, particularly when you are insatiably curious, acknowledging milestones is very difficult because then suddenly your brain's like, I yes. need a new one. Like, yeah, yes. okay, tick, I've done Harvard, but like, what's next? And so it's even harder because without those 
big sort of momentous events or acknowledgements. It's like you couldn't close a chapter before, but let alone without these events, it's even harder to do that. And I found with my book coming out, it came out while we were, you know, we were yeah. in stage four. So there were no bookshops open. So I still feel like it's not really out there. So when I see mine, I'm like, oh, my mum printed that at Officeworks. Like, that's nice. <laughs> I feel you it still that. doesn't feel like a real thing. Yep. <laughs> but how would you say because of that whole like – changing your metrics of measuring your life and also being someone who might fall into the trap of like going to the next mm. goal very quickly and not sort of celebrating and acknowledging that. How would you now describe your relationship to success versus happiness versus progress and dreams? It's such a good question. And I think it's something that there's been a lot of people who've helped me reframe. Like I've found Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset around celebrating effort versus outcome. Uh, to be one important reframe in terms of just I'm always proud. It's a bit like the book. I mean, it's it, it's due out this month. I have no idea how it will go in the world, but I'm so proud of the product I'm putting up and that's the part yeah. I choose to be proud of because all I can do, I can't control how people are going to react to it, but I know how many hours went into that in terms of the interviews, the writing, the finessing it. And I believe it's got great value for a lot of lot of people in it. And so I'm proud of that. And I think one of the other things, a really good mentor of mine, Lane Beachley, who many of you know from her surfing prowess, she used to tell me a story that she's won seven world titles and there's one that she doesn't <laughs> Just even <casually. laughs> remember because she didn't stop and celebrate it. Wow. And so yeah. her lesson to me, and this is probably some wisdom she passed uh, to me in I think it was 2014 when we'd, we'd had sort of a big success with the G20 and I sort of wasn't coming up for air and keeping going. This is sort of all in that period where I was still recalibrating is making sure in whatever way that it looks like for you, because everyone's different on how they like to celebrate, how you make a marker of something. And she used to say to me all the time, like, how yeah. long do you think your head and body are going to keep up with operating at the intensity, with having the energy if when all that energy achieves something that you're really excited about, you don't stop and celebrate and go, ah, oh, that was awesome. You know, that self-reward, not for anyone else's purpose, but your own, right? To say, wow, I'm really proud that all those hours produced that yeah. or did that or isn't that great. So I think that's yeah. really helped me to kind of reset in that regard. And, and so for me, like last weekend was so beautiful because it was time with all my favorite people just this wonderful energy in the room that was all I could have ever asked for for a celebration. And so for me, it was never about collecting a piece of paper. It was just about having some sense of closure. And I think that went a long way to helping me achieve it. Yeah. But I think, you know, I'm A-type stuff is hardwired. Like I will always be someone that has goals. I will always be someone who wants to do the best <laughs> of everything I set my mind to, right? Like I've always going to want to do yeah. things well. I think the thing that you get a healthier relationship with is just having a more holistic definition of success. So a lot of people, Absolutely. I think, kind of go the one dimension of success is career, it's title, it's pay packet, it's whatever. It's not the incredible relationships I've got with the people that I love and care about. It's not how healthy my body is. It's not what we talked about before and how happy I am every day. And I think when you start bringing those things into your definition of success, life just gets so much more colourful and wonderful. Mm. And it doesn't mean that being the best at what you do and where, however you choose to, to apply your talents and your craft doesn't matter. It always will, but it matters in context. And I think when it becomes anchored in purpose versus the notion of kind of maybe more superficial metrics where they're more about, I don't know, something you're trying to prove to the world or wanting validation off others, then that changes that success factor as well. So I think mine's evolved quite a quite a lot. I used to be someone previously who just wanted to, I think it was a volume game almost. It was ticking stuff off. And I don't know that it was ever oh, yeah. focused too much on other than like wanting to test how much I could do and whether I could do it. But I think now I'm much more about quality. I'm much more holistic and I'm much more about focusing on what's in my sphere of influence. I, I, I can control my effort. I can control the way I show up. I can control the way I treat people. And that's what I'm going to choose to value in terms of what I deem success to look like. Yeah, totally. I actually had Gary Vaynerchuk on the show the year before. And one of the things that I love about him is mm -hmm. he is 
using his platform to really push this idea of a happiness metric. Like why would we measure our lives by anything else? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean that financial metrics aren't important. Like we all have a livelihood. We all have a hierarchy of needs and there's a reason why career is a factor in our lives. It doesn't mean throwing all those things out. But if you put happiness as a measure before you put everything else, like everything else falls into place when you have all those needs of, Mm -hmm. you know, joy and family and connection, like all those things come first and then all the success metrics fall into place after that. It's like just flipping the triangle on its head, which I think is really, really valuable. I love that. Which is why, very nice segue into the last section, which is your play TA. And that's the part where I love in your book, one of the chapters is go back to being four or something about remember who you were when you were four. (laughs) And that's exactly what this is about. Seize the yay is called seize the yay because yay is juvenile. And it reminds me of not taking life too seriously and going back to that inner child that I think there's some something in the the prologue or the intro that you said about how tragic it is that we lose that insatiable curiosity that we have with children. We also lose that unfiltered ability to find joy and to find joy regardless of mm-hmm. what other kids are doing to find joy. Some kids love the sandpit. Some kids fucking hate a sandpit. And But you don't get filtered by social <laughs> expectations about the sandpit. You just go in or you don't go in depending on what you like. And that's something I think we lose as well once we start to get – expectations of norms of success and career we we stop making decisions based on what am I good at and what do I like and we make decisions based on what other people think I should do and then often people's big aha Mm -hmm. moment is just circling back to what you could have guessed if you look at them as a kid and I feel like that's this beautiful circle of life which is why play TA for me is remembering never to let go of that so I never have to come back to it again it's just keeping close to to that joy and not getting to the end of my life and thinking even if I love my job, I don't want to get to the end of my life and think I just worked and died. Like there's a place for pleasure totally. and activities that are maybe not productive at all, but that make you happy. So what's your play, TA? What do you do that's just for joy? Great question. I love that. And I love the focus that you have on, it's one of the reasons I resonated with everything you're doing with the podcast, because I think that absolutely is a heartbeat of of the book. And it's something I'm very passionate about, both the curiosity and you you see it if you're around a small kid, you know, if, if you haven't been for a little while, borrow one of your friend's kids, go, go, go take them to the park. There's plenty just of them listen, around right now. Just listen to the, you know, the why, 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 why does that happen? Why does this happen? You know, all, the need to understand and make sense of the world and the unfiltered nature in which they ask questions and the volume. Like it is sad what happens to us by the time we become teenagers with how few questions yeah. we're asking. And then the other thing to your point is, is just that playfulness. Like it is amazing trying to get a lot of adults to play. It is just... It's so embarrassing. I feel I feel ashamed. You know, I'm not. I've got a certain way I need to show up in the world, and and the inability to kind of be silly and be free is something that I think is is unfortunate a, a limitation for us. So, I mean, for me, I love running. I think I'm one of my freest is when I'm just out in nature, kind of not even with a sense of direction. One of the things I actually like doing is running and just seeing where my gut wants me to go. When we get to a fork in the road, are we going left or right? And just kind of going where I feel drawn on any particular day. I think one of the other things that like aside from loving cooking, one of the other big things for me is I love the theater. Uh, And one of the best things I've gone and done. I mean, I love being, I love watching theater, but I also for a while during my year of fear, I, I write about in the book, I did 365 days of doing things I was afraid of with my best friend. And I started taking acting and singing lessons. And oh, that's that the best. was joyous. I had the most amazing teacher, and I think that makes a big difference. But the playfulness of singing and not being good at it, you know, but fully embracing that and going with it, the idea of being thrown into a scene and taking on a character, I find that world fascinating. It's definitely one I, I don't have mm. any form of professional skill set in. And I resonate with that idea of doing something not for an outcome. Like that was never the goal with any of that. I was never wanting to be an actress. I was never wanting to be a singer. It was just that freedom to play and explore, but under the guidance of someone who could like play with you or help you play. Because often when we're stepping into something that is not familiar, it can feel really uncomfortable. So we need a little bit of guidance. So I, I regularly go to improv classes just because I love them. Oh, my it's gosh. Fun. It's It's live. It's energetic. And it keeps me on my toes and I, and I learn and I discover things about myself. So they're probably some of the things I do just for, just for the sake of it. 
And I think that's so important because I find personally, and now I imagine even more so that you're the same, (laughs) is that like, it's very, very hard to try something new and not try and be good at it and not Mm -hmm. try and master it because it's in our nature to want to do a good job at whatever we do. So I found it incredibly liberating to find play to yays or plays to yay. I still haven't decided what the plural is of play to yay. Um, That I'm never going to care about being good at that. I will let myself just do because they're fun and not care that I look stupid, but that's really difficult. Like it's actually a mental exercise to be like, do not make an A-type exercise out of this. Do not try and be an Olympic gymnast. Like do not set that expectation for yourself because that kills the play then. Yeah. And one of the things my partner and I are doing now is we've embraced this idea of doing a creative date once a month and we alternate who picks (gasps) it. But the idea is that it takes us into a world, you know, we've we've gone to cooking classes, dancing, we've done that kind of class where you go and you learn how to paint. So all oh that sort of gosh. stuff is we go to interactive theatre. Like the, the goal is it's kind of a choose your own adventure and each person takes us somewhere that's very unfamiliar. And it is, it's stuff that neither of us are good at, but we do it for the sake of the experience, the shared learning and adventure together, but also because we realize quite quickly how easy it is to get in a rhythm with life. And it's yeah. really hard sometimes to just go, I need to be more creative when we're such creatures of habit and there's so many yeah. demands on our time and our bandwidth is so stretched. So one of the things we've found is that discipline of just doing it once a month, creating that night, that day, that couple of hours, whatever it is, to just have that time out and to have intentionally created space to go and do something out out of your world that uh, I, oh. I really encourage people whether you're doing it with a friend or a housemate or doing it for yourself like I used to go on solo creative dates where I just take myself to a gallery or I take myself somewhere that I might be inspired well I'm finding it incredibly beneficial this trying this idea yeah. on I don't know where it originated from I'm sure I should be giving credit to someone for it but it's it's been a really great addition to my life so have a go have a play everyone it obviously came from this podcast <laughs> I love the idea of a year of fear too, because I think that is what holds us back so much is our fear. But when you actually try or confront your fear head on, you realize most of the time you've just let it snowball in your brain. Like you're not actually that scared. It's not nowhere near as bad as you think it is. And I find the same with self-doubt, like whatever scenarios are playing through in your head, once you actually do the thing, you're like, that was nowhere near as bad as my brain was letting me think. Like your brain will just take you out in all kinds of weird scenarios. But if you just confront your fear, you realize actually you're so much more capable than you think you are. Oh, completely. We have this like apocalyptic version of what will happen if we do the thing we're afraid of. And one of the things I always say to people when you have that fear, and this is a, a habit I sort of built through that year of conquering them day after day and working out how to make it a little bit easier for myself to do that um, because some some days are really intimidating depending on the nature of the fear is to mm. sit down and actually write out like your worst case scenario of what's going to happen if you do the thing you're afraid of because one of the things you work out really quickly is you could be a soap opera writer in your free time if you wanted to. Oh. Like we are so creative. <laughs> it snowballs so quickly. We are so absurd. And you look at it and you read it and putting it down in writing, there's something about anchoring our unconscious thought to our, our conscious thought. You read it and you go, I'm being ridiculous. And then you have to give yourself a likelihood score between 1 and 10, like 10 being really oh. likely, 1 being really low. And I found that whole year I never got above a 7. And that, that was with doing a whole myriad of, of things. And at the same time, when I write this stuff down, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, the fact I can laugh at myself or I can make fun of or I can see how ridiculous I'm being about what might go wrong just made it so easy, <laughs> so much easier to push through it. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe you just said that because there is actually a chapter in the CZA book called Workshop Your Worst Case Scenario, which is write out like workshop the worst possible scenario, write it down and just look at it and see how stupid it is. I cannot believe you just said that. That's insane. (laughs) I love that. That's awesome. Well, I've got two bookend questions for the end of the episode to wrap things up, but there's one that I forgot to ask, which is just a guilty pleasure question. And that is, what was it like to interview Obama? Because I feel like that's an incredibly important question that there aren't many people you could ask who would actually be able to answer because they have interviewed him. What was it like? And speaking of fear, were you like shitting your pants? Were you excited? <laughs> like I would just be like, what? I'm not even, words aren't going to come out. Like I might melt on the floor. <laughs> it was it was funny. It was definitely in, the preparation of the questions was probably the most stressful part because I was just thinking I really don't want to 
waste this opportunity. You've got this incredible. So I think it was actually less in the moment. I, I felt really calm and he's very calming. He has a really calm energy to him. So the experience itself was unbelievable. And, and there is so much I can say about that. But I think two things really strike me about Obama. One was I think because he's so he's such an incredible orator and we've all seen him do like late night shows and be be very cool and he had an ability unlike a few politicians to kind of transcend demographics that we actually forget yeah. how extraordinarily academic he is and sitting there mm-hmm. as he'd unpack his decision making and his thinking and how his layered approach you could just see how deeply he had considered the world and his positions on things and not that I should have ever not thought that to be the case but it was really striking just how the depth of his intellect and how considered a thinker he was. And I think the second thing goes to one of the things I touched on there, which is he had a really calm energy, which is not true of a lot of the politicians that you meet where there's either a need to assert their presence or almost a need you feel for kind of some gratification back, like they want to impress you or they want validation. He is just so secure in himself. And there's a really calm energy that comes with that. And, and that was another thing that was quite striking about being in his presence is it, yeah, it was a very calm and, and centred energy. It felt very grounded. Someone who'd clearly done the work to understand everything that they were about before yeah. they decided to do all the work around what they were about in the, in the leadership role that they had. Oh, my gosh. How fascinating. <gasps> I'm sure very that's what lucky. people say about you too. <laughs> <laughs> so 180 flip back to the dumb stuff. Second last question is more <laughs> guilty pleasure things that just make people yay to sort of get to know you better as a person. What are the three interesting things about you that don't normally Oof. come up in interviews? And because you do have a very intellectual presence in the world, sparking meaningful political or social conversations on podcasts, in your book and everywhere else on the interwebs. Mm. What are some of the dumber things? Do you do dumb stuff like binge on Netflix? Oh, yeah. We all binge on Netflix, don't we? My gosh. Okay, good. No, but some people don't. Some people are so intellectual. They're just like, I don't own a television. Oh, no. I'm like, okay, I I can't relate. (laughs) Okay, when I need to zone out mentally, I'll quite often YouTube like SNL highlights and stand up. (gasps) I really love all that world. So that's one thing that doesn't really ever come up. (laughs) <laughs> I do the Graham Norton show highlights. Oh, it is love. so much fun because he puts together groups of celebrities that you're just like, they're so randomly unconnected, like from totally different worlds. And there'll just be three of them on the couch together. And his fan girling each other. are incredible yeah. too. They pull out the most random facts about people and just <gasps> drop them in. And the conversation heads in all these directions that you are, oh. you'd never otherwise expect. So that's definitely one. Okay. Flip side though, I, I have practically never seen any movies. I'm terrible. Oh, I do not wow. have the attention span. Um, okay. And it's just like, so whenever anyone mentions a movie, I'm like, haven't seen it, haven't seen it. I'm terrible. You don't want me on the pop culture section of a pub quiz? Because <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty okay, good to on. know. Uh, I'll put you on like the geopolitical, like public policy. (laughs) (laughs) You can be on that team. That's probably two of them. And then I'm trying to think. That's a great one. What's something your partner would say about like your sleep habits or is there anything weird you do around food or? Oh, what would be the verdicts there? There could probably be a couple. Oh, I think probably that I am pretty good at not sleeping. (laughs) So, (laughs) Well, that's not a surprise at all. (laughs) No. So, I mean, I've been doing night shift. So I was going to say it's probably a little bit tweaked at the moment because I've I've been doing night shift with classes for the better part of the last year. So getting up at 11 and PM and having to go through to about 4am just for, for <gasps> class times with Boston. The time difference is not great for this part of the world. So that's been challenging. So I think quite often I'll be up at random parts of the night and just, so I'll, I'll do some of my best thinking, I think sometimes in the, the very wee hours of the morning, but I'm a bit all over the place. And I actually think what's weird is I know I'm at my best when I'm like that. So I actually know that something's oh. not right when I'm sleeping for a long period of time. When I'm shorter sleeping, I know that I'm I'm healthy, which sounds really weird and counterintuitive and it's not something I would say about everyone. It's just something I've definitely discovered in myself. If I need a lot of sleep, I'm running, I'm burning myself too hard and I need to recalibrate wow. because my, my normal nights would be a lower amount of sleep. So like probably a good amount for me is like five to six. So if I'm in like the eight to nine territory, I know that I'm, I'm maybe not 
I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm maybe working myself a little bit too hard and need to change the balance. That sounds very Da Vinci-esque. Like I only need five hours and I operate perfectly. My brain just needs five hours. Like that's amazing. I, I feel like that's when I... I know I'm rolling. So my big breakdown was chronic fatigue. So if I don't get eight or nine hours, I am not a functional human being. Like I can literally close my eyes now and sleep. I could sleep anywhere, anytime. That's incredible. Yeah. That's a, I would love that special talent. It's pretty great. That's awesome. It's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> and final question, what's your favourite quote? The one that I... I know it's a hard one. I, well, I think I could pick a lot because I love quotes. I'm a words person. So quotes are sort of all over my life and all over my wall, but... I think in asking that question, I've got to honour the one that's on the, the background of my laptop and has been there for probably 15 years. Wow. And that is, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I love that one. The saddest parts of the whole writing of the book journey was actually discovering that that quote is probably not from Margaret Mead, which is what it's attributed to. <laughs> On, you have to go through so much fact-finding <laughs> oh, in writing the book. No. <laughs> and one of the things that came back is she probably never said that, but I'm choosing to believe that it's Margaret's words, but irrespective of who said it, I love love that quote, so that would be my favorite. Oh, that's such a good one and a beautiful way to finish. Thank you so much, Holly. You have so much wisdom and knowledge, and I think everyone should go and buy the book. When is it out? What date is it officially? It's out on July 20, <gasps> so very soon. Pre-order between now and then. All good bookstores are online wherever you choose to buy your books. Uh, it's called The Leading Edge. So, Perfect. yeah, I would love love to hear what people think about it and to start a, a new conversation about leadership and getting the best out of yourself. Well, I have just finished it, and it is full of incredible knowledge and takeaways and very practical as well. Lots of really interesting case studies and absolutely fascinating. So I'll make sure to put links to pre-sale for now and then from July 20 to actual sale. Huge congratulations and thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk with you, Sarah. <laughs> what a woman. Just being around Holly makes me want to soak up the most out of life and create impact in my sphere of influence, as she puts it. I hope you found her as energizing as I did and cannot recommend a read of her new book, The Leading Edge, more highly. Link to pre-sale is in the show notes now. As always, please do share any takeaways or aha moments with the episode tagging at Holly underscore Ransom and myself so we can show our gratitude for Holly sharing her wisdom and continue to grow the neighborhood as far and wide as possible. I hope you're all having a wonderful week and a seizing your yay.